they're banking on the general public just not knowing. They think they're buying an American brand, doing their part to make America great. And what they don't know is that they're not. They're boosting those sales. That label is critical. That's our pride on the box. That's American made on the box. We are not asking for, for raises, the upper tier wage, the, the regular full-time people. We're not asking for anything on this con, anything above and beyond what we are already getting. So we, we're asking the, for the transitional people to work alongside us and get the same wage that we are. During those 12-hour shifts that I was working, it wasn't just 12 hours of working, it was 12 hours of running, running and milking nonstop. It was so intense. It was intense, not just physically, but also you know, there wasn't any rest. And so that work that I was doing with my colleagues, I came to realize was just so important because as a result of our work, as a result of our labor, the milk that we were generating was enough to feed families. You know, that was milk that was feeding families throughout the world. Some articles came out recently that the average wage for restaurant and grocery workers is finally above 15 an hour for the first time ever. And you and I have been following and participating in the Fight for 15 movement Ever since launch in 2012, it was an aspiration then. Now statistics show that 80% of wages are at least 15 an hour. So I think we're finally seeing this year more of a movement towards 15. One of the big things that we're seeing with this with these rent assistance programs across the country is that those who don't really need it as much are much more easily able to access it than those who are not. Take our, our state of Oregon, for example. There's multiple counties outside of Salem that have that are more rural in nature and uh, for them low access to wi-fi and incredibly complex applications have on top of a lot of these administrative challenges led to just smaller amounts of people applying i thought it was like the cooler way to be was to like make everything a joke and make it everything as like outlandish or weird or like silly as you can make it and I do feel like as I've like been in this world of sitcoms, I do think grounding your characters in reality is really important. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from some of the nearly 150 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can check them all out at laborradionetwork.org. This week... From the BCTGM Voices Project, more voices from the ongoing strike by Kellogg's workers. On the Working People podcast, Max talks to striker Dan Osborne, who's worked at Kellogg's Omaha plant for 18 years. And on Labor Lines, labor researcher and organizer Eric Dernbach says millions are quitting their jobs but need to organize instead. Then, from the For a Better World podcast, No Blood for Milk, workers call on Chobani for justice. On Labor Radio on KBU FM, Michael and Elliot discuss the federal eviction moratorium. And we wrap up this week's show with the On Writing podcast, where Lang Fisher describes her writing process and how it's changed, as well as what success means in her industry. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Remember, you can find all of today's shows, along with nearly 150 more just like them, at laborradionetwork.org. 
And if you enjoy the Labor Radio Podcast Network weekly, please be sure to like us and share. Solidarity works. Here's the show. Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. I will bring the work of our union to you through monthly interviews with the BCTGM's hardworking leaders, organizers, and everyday members. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. In this episode, we follow up our previous conversation with East Central Region Vice President Roger Miller with worker perspective on the Kellogg strike from all four locations. Here are the voices of the Kellogg strike. My name is Kevin Bradshaw. I'm Vice President of Local 252G in Memphis. I've been with the Kellogg's company for 20 years. My name is Victor Francia, and I'm here at the Omaha Kellogg's plant with the Local 50G Union. I am Heather Green. I'm with uh, Local 3 in Battle Creek, and I'm a crew leader in the warehouse, and I've been with Kellogg's for 15 years. Hello, I'm Donovan Williams. I've been with the Kellogg Company for eight years in Battle Creek, Michigan, Local 3G. And I'm Andy Johnson. I've been with Kellogg's for three years now, Local 374G. Kevin, do you know anything about what's going on inside of Memphis right now regarding replacement workers? Uh, well, we've heard from some very good reliable sources that they're not doing anything but cleaning and doing a lot of contracted work that they had already scheduled to be done. Um, they have been busting scabs in and out, but it's more of a, like a shell game. They'll bring four buses, and out of the four buses, they'll have 10 to 15, no more than 20 people on all four buses. <laughs> so they're trying, to, they're trying to deter people and intimidate them and scare them as if, they can be replaced when they know in essence that they can be replaced. Donovan, you talked about how you were heading up the planning of your grandmother's funeral. Yeah, me being a person that the responsibilities in my family falls upon, my grandmother passed away and there was basically no one other than me to plan her funeral. Talked to the HR department, tried to confirm that I could get those days off and ended up accruing six points disciplinary points while planning my grandmother's funeral, went in to talk with them to try to figure out if we could do anything about those points to get them removed. They act as if their hands were tied and there were not, there was nothing they could do to, to help me. There was no willingness to work with me and there was no sympathy at all for my family and what we were going through at that time. Andy, will you just talk about the ways that the overtime just comes up well, you know, That's someone it. calls in on the next shift and you're five minutes before your shift's over and they're calling you up on the phone and saying, guess what? Enjoy another eight hours tonight. And you got no choice but to stay. They don't care that your kids need to be gotten off the bus and there's no one else. They don't care that you have family obligations at home. That All they want to do is run their business. And if there's no forgiveness, if you don't have a way out or you can't get someone to cover you, you're stuck or you're going to lose your job. If you only get eight hours off, they don't care that you have to drive an hour home to get there and then an hour back to get. They talk about safety in the plant. 
and they're jeopardizing safety every day by making someone work 16 hours day after day. And they just don't care. As long as no one gets hurt, they put their blinders on and keep moving. Heather, you've been pretty vocal about the union label issue. There's been some conflicting messaging going on here. I know for a fact that in the union negotiations with the company, they threatened them all week long that if we didn't give them what they wanted, they would send the jobs to Mexico. The company is now saying they did not include that in this negotiation. They are banking on the general public just not knowing. They think they're buying an American brand, doing their part to make America great. And what they don't know is that they're not. They're boosting those sales. That label is critical. That's our pride on the box. That's American made on the box. And the, if you somebody really wants to buy the made Mexico stuff, you know, that's on the box too. But when you take that label off, the customer just doesn't know the difference. The made in Mexico product years ago were on the shelf in Battle Creek, Michigan, right next to the union made product, same product, right next to each other on the shelves. Why would you ever put product made somewhere else on the shelf next to Battle Creek headquarter Cereal City. Cereal City product. And I'm yeah. sure it happens in Lancaster, Omaha, and Memphis as well. And guys, remember, there is not a section in the grocery store shelves that has all the food made in Mexico that is being sold at a much reduced price to the consumer. But Kellogg's is not passing on those labor savings because they're making it in another country for much, much cheaper. The consumers aren't paying less. You know, they're yeah. still paying full price for the same stuff that we make. So all that is doing is increasing the profits this company is making. And again, on an uneducated consumer. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. As y'all may have heard, um, Kellogg's workers at the cereal manufacturing giant Kellogg's have gone on strike at plants in Battle Creek, Michigan, as well as Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Omaha, Nebraska, and Memphis. And workers with the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and Gray Miller's International Union hit the picket line last week. And we are here to get an update about what's going on with this strike. And so I wanted to introduce you all to our guest today. Dan, why don't you introduce yourself to the good folks? My name is Dan Osborne. I am a BCTGM Local 50G president here in Omaha, Nebraska. Dan, thank you so much for making time to uh, sit down and chat with me. I figured we could start by maybe turning things over to you and asking if you could Give listeners and viewers, I guess, a bit of a breakdown of kind of what led to this strike. I want to go back a little bit into 2019, uh, leading up to the contract. Kellogg's did not hire one single person. 
in 2019. And same going all the way back to 2014, leading up to the 2015 contract. That's their MO. They do that in order to shorten our numbers. We have to do forced overtime because, like I said, when when uh, they tell me I have to work till 7 p.m., that's to cover for a vacancy. And when I have to come in at 3 a.m., that's to cover for a night shift vacancy. And so the more vacancies they can create, the more forced overtime, and they try to wear people down in hopes that in the upcoming contract, we're more apt to uh, you know, give concessions. I believe that's their, their mindset behind that. So in 2019, they didn't hire anybody, so we were short. Going up to the 2020 contract at midnight before it expired, we had 39 people retire that were eligible. Out of those 39 people, I'll bet you 30 of them didn't want to retire. They weren't ready. A lot of them wanted to work five more years for whatever reasons that benefited their families or whatnot. So we had 39 people walk out. So we were already, I believe we were 70 bids short. Those are vacancies that I talked about. And then plus the 39 people and then boom the pandemic hits. And during the pandemic, when we were, when we're frontline workers, we're making food for the country during the pandemic. Everybody's stocking their shelves with our, with our product. We were almost 100 people short at one point due to actually having COVID or COVID uh, policies through the company, contact tracing. You got to be out. We don't want to get everybody sick type of thing. So we were that many people short. So we did not, that, that our plant did not shut down. We ran through COVID. Meanwhile, the company's making record profits off of our backs and off of our labor, which we never complained about once. So the issue at hand is not, we are not complaining about the hours that we worked, but we want to be compensated. We are not asking for, for raises, the upper tier wage, the regular full-time people. We're not asking for anything on this con, anything above and beyond what we are already getting. So we were asking the, for the transitional people to work alongside us and get the same wage that we are. The, the intention is that tier of workers will be transitioned into the kind of full-time first tier. Sure. But instead, it feels like what the, how the company has interpreted that is in a very Amazon-based model where you just churn uh, out bodies and cycle through people with high turnover of people in that tier. And this right. is something we reported on in Bessemer where, you know, even Amazon was constantly touting its like benefits and, and so on and so forth <clears throat> as an incentive for people to stay working there. And yeah. I think it's really significant that workers with the union who are in that kind of first tier, um, who are like really going to the mat for their coworkers who are in that second tier so oh. that they don't get left by the wayside. That is a real kind of lesson in solidarity and really important. Dan, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Again, we're sending nothing but love and solidarity to you and everyone out there on the line in Omaha and around the country. For everyone watching, this is Maximilian Alvarez at The Real News Network. Thank you so much for watching. This is John Andercheck with Labor Lines, which airs on KRFP 90.3 FM in Moscow, Idaho, and Labor Lines, a podcast on Anchor FM and other platforms. Joining me today from New York City is one person I will consider a comrade, a friend, a 
over all this distance. He's joined me before in some great discussions. Eric Dernbach. Eric is a labor researcher, a member of the Labor's Union, in which I also carry a card. So, Eric, welcome back. Right now, we're going to be talking about a piece that you wrote on the Internet magazine, Organizing Work. You posted on the 24th of September. Millions of workers are quitting, but should organize instead. And before I turn it over to you, I, we were talking about this before it went on the air. The photo you put in there is under a picture that says a thousand words. It's a Burger King sign. Underneath it, the reader board is, we all quit. Sorry for the inconvenience. With that, Eric, go ahead and let's talk about your piece and just get right into it. Eric, I, I think back to uh, Bernie Sanders running in 2016. Enough is enough. And we got to that point now, maybe with millions. And just a, one quick thought also on the stats there. When you mentioned them, the quit versus layoff, it would be interesting if you could break that out. And you probably couldn't. But if you could break that out, how many of those layoffs were related to the quit stat? That they, these places just didn't even have enough people after so many workers quit they had, they had to just lay off the rest of their staff. And well, I guess one more thing, I always say that the bosses, the capitalists love to talk to us about supply and demand. If you can't get X for a certain amount, just offer it more. What I say is I'd love to get gasoline for a dollar a gallon, but I'm paying 350 and But the 
bosses, the work, the companies, they loved that supply and demand, except when it came to labor, didn't they? Then it was, they have to come up with some other idea or they complain about lazy workers or they go to the government as they did in some of these states to stop the pandemic support network. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. It's an interesting question you're asking about the details of the quits and layoffs. I think that would be harder to know. There has been a concern by employers this year that the extra pandemic assistance has encouraged workers to stay home. And actually, it could be the case that has been a factor, just one factor. For one thing, the the essential workers that have had to go to work all this year have been working under really terrible and dangerous conditions. There's all kinds of issues that, again, have scrambled the labor market, and and employers are basically finally realizing uh, that maybe they have to improve conditions to attract folks back to work. And so we actually have seen wages go up a bit, I think we've hit a really interesting milestone. Some articles came out recently that the average wage for restaurant and grocery workers is finally above 15 an hour for the first time ever. And you and I have been following and participating in the Fight for 15 movement ever since it launched in 2012. It was an aspiration then. Now statistics show that 80% of wages are at least 15 an hour. So I think we're finally seeing this year more of a movement towards 15. Now, part of that is all of the organizing that's been going on. Part of it is fights to raise the minimum wage at, at the state level in many states. So it's, it's a bunch of factors into it going in. But we've been saying for a long time that folks need at least 15 and a union. <laughs> and so part of the pandemic economy um, and workers quitting and being dissatisfied is finally moving us in that direction. Eric Dernbach, New York City, member of the Labor's Union as I, labor researcher, author. His piece was in organizing uh, work, which I highly recommend. It's an internet publication. It was titled, Millions are Quitting, Millions of Workers Are Quitting, But Should Organize Instead, posted on September 24th. Thank you, Eric. Let's keep in touch. And you're doing some tremendous work. Thank you again. Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. like every snack gets pitched these days as healthy and good for you. One of the products at the top of that list is Greek yogurt. And Chobani is at the front of that pack of yogurt brands. It's the most consumed yogurt brand in the United States with more than 44 million people in the U.S. reportedly eating Chobani yogurt. I'm Dana Geffner, Executive Director of Fairwell Project. And this season, we're going to be looking at Chobani's yogurt. It's a brand on the rise, growing faster than many tech companies over the past 15 years. They're business press darlings with a CEO who gets lots of coverage for doing some genuinely good things for the people who work at his manufacturing plants, like offering stock to workers that gives them an ownership share in the company. 
Finally tonight, a big surprise for a brand many Americans love. Chobani yogurt rose from the ground up to become a multi-billion dollar sensation. And we were there exclusively today when the CEO gave a gift that is turning employees into owners and a few future millionaires. Earlier this year, Chobani stepped up its feel-good branding and partnered with Fairtrade USA to release a, quote, fair trade dairy option in grocery stores across the country. But... Since they first announced this plan, it has been strongly opposed by those who would seemingly be its most essential stakeholders and advocates, farm workers and worker and human rights groups. So how does a company that's giving out stock shares to its workers end up at odds with worker and human rights watchdogs? This season, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of Chobani yogurt and talk to the people who are building real transformative solutions that all of us can feel good about supporting. To get us started, Anna Canning, Fairwell Project's campaigns manager, is taking us to New York State to speak to someone who has changed that state's dairy industry as much as Chobani. Thank you so much for the invitation uh, to be here today with you. My name is Crispin, and I have worked for the dairy industry in the past, milking cows. Crispin Hernandez now organizes dairy workers in Chobani's New York supply chains with the Workers' Center of Central New York. Together, they have made historic change for New York's farm workers. But that's getting ahead of the story. As we do in pandemic times, I talk to Crispin online through an interpreter. That's the interpreter's voice you'll hear throughout our conversation. Yeah, well, so in the first place, when I first came to this country, and this was back in 2013, I wasn't aware of the rights that we had. I wasn't aware of the rights that we had as farm and agricultural workers. At that time, the ranch that I was working at, there was a lot of injustice in the workplace. The managers would yell at us. They said words that, in my opinion, were not okay for them to be saying to me. And there was just a lot of injustice. And so one of the things, as I mentioned, we were milking these cows. And so we actually had to buy our own long gloves um, for ourselves. And that was to protect us from chemicals and from other sorts of things that you might come into contact with in that work environment. So let me explain a little bit also about the work itself, as I feel like it is important to let you know that when I first started working there, there was never any kind of efficient training for us on the job training or anything like that. And when I had first started working, there was actually a work accident and a cow stepped on my hand and I wasn't taken to the hospital when that occurred. Uh, and I thought that was not okay. Yeah, and so after that accident occurred, I continued to work, as I had said before, and I got better while I was working on the job, and I kept milking. It was the case that I was working six days a week, 12-hour shifts at a time, and those shifts might be daytime shifts, they might also be nighttime shifts. And These experiences that Crispin is sharing are scary and unfair. They're also unfortunately common. Farm work is dangerous work, and dairy farms are some of the most dangerous. Cows are big animals. They weigh upwards of 1,500 pounds. And then there's also the chemicals used to keep the place clean, to prevent all that milk and all those animals from brewing up some big bacterial mess. Low milk prices, corporate consolidation, and a number of other factors push farmers to cut corners to save money where possible. And too often, the corners that get cut are essential worker protections. Safety equipment, time to go to the hospital when injured on the job, a break to grab a meal? During those 12-hour shifts that I was working, it wasn't just 12 hours of working, it was 12 hours of running, running and milking nonstop. And it felt as though 
I didn't really have time to eat in a good way or any time whatsoever to kind of relax during the course of it. And it was so intense. It was intense, not just physically, but also, you know, there wasn't any rest. There wasn't any kind of pause and there was a lot of pressure. And so that work that I was doing with my colleagues, I came to realize was just so important because as a result of our work, as a result of our labor, the milk that we were generating was enough to feed families, you know, that was milk that was feeding families throughout the world. Thanks for joining us on For a Better World podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode where Anna will pick up the conversation with Crispin and connect the dots back to that Chobani yogurt tub where we started. Until then, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Your five-star reviews help get more people listening. Welcome to Labor Radio. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gillan. Thank you so much for joining us. And so today we're going to be discussing the uh, the homelessness crisis as well as the coming eviction crisis that is uh, facing working people in this nation. And I'd like to start by just reading a few quotes here. Um, the first of which is from The Economist, not necessarily a friend to workers, but they actually have a good point here, which is that the median American rent uh, payment rose 61% in real terms between 1960 and 2016, while the median renter's income grew by only 5% in that same time. And from The Wall Street Journal, which is also another publication that is not necessarily a friend to the worker, they point out that as of July of this past year, or sorry, of this year, Median home prices were up 23% from last year, while incomes were only up 3%. Mortgages haven't been this unaffordable since 2008. And I think we all know what happened in 2008 with mortgages. Now, there is a little bit of good news, and that is that the Treasury Department, as a result of the funding packages, the emergency funding packages that were put forward at the beginning of COVID, the Treasury Department distributed the first of its $25 billion uh, in rental assistance funds from Congress to the states in February yeah. Uh, of this past year, or of this year, and the second of its twenty-one billion dollars early in early May, so there is money that has been going out, but it is nowhere what necessarily needs to, to happen in order to yeah. really intervene on this. Yeah, and there was obviously money, not a lot, but there's money earmarked in the American Rescue Plan, also yeah. tied to these things that states are allowed to distribute, right. which we talked about on a previous show when yeah. Oregon started distributing that money. So yeah, there has been actions. Absolutely. And so obviously, as you mentioned, there are multiple different forms of this and every state, because it is the program of providing this rental assistance was, it was, it's a questionable design because instead of just being a direct funding through the federal government or through the IRS to individuals, it was handed from, the money was given from the federal government to state and localities to be dealt with on their own instead of their own programs. Yeah. And because of that poor design, some of the aid has not been distributed properly for a number of different reasons, because the people involved with actually getting the money into the hands of, of renters and, and working people in need is definitely, it, some of those pro programs can be overwhelmed, and they certainly were being flooded with applications for that money. But not, nevertheless, like it is definitely an indictment of our inability to help in basic ways of the people in this country that we haven't been able to get this money out there. So the process itself for putting this money, the, the, these funds out to people is overseen by the Treasury Department, but the program itself relies on about 450 other players in order to distribute that aid. And that includes state, county, and municipal governments, as well as 
individual charitable organizations. And many of those groups have struggled to properly launch their localized programs because they're facing challenges. One of the biggest things is just finding the right staff to, to figure out how to make that work, as well as deciding upon the, for how best to distribute that money. But on top of those issues, just the sheer amount of applications that has, they've received has created something of an administrative nightmare. And that... Uh, I think is largely to blame for why this money hasn't gone out, although there's likely also some political elements to it too, depending on which state and which you know political party is running each state and locality. I think one of the big things that we're seeing with this with these rent assistance programs across the country is that those who don't really need it as much are much more easily able to access it than those who are not. Take our, our state of Oregon, for example. There's multiple counties outside of Salem that have that are more rural in nature and also have some of the most highly populated or high, highest percentage of folks inside of a county who are applying to these programs whose work has been affected the most and uh, for them low access to wi-fi and incredibly complex applications have on top of a lot of these administrative challenges led to just smaller amounts of people applying. And yeah. so you can take a look at the county data and it really shows that there are more people per capita in these different areas like getting in front of applications who based on their socioeconomic status don't actually really need, you know, you would expect based on socioeconomic status of different counties that there be different application rates. Yeah. And the counties that we would expect to see the highest amount of applications, we actually see less than some of these counties that we would assume wouldn't. That's interesting. Um, and it's, a lot of the reason is due to also how difficult it can be to apply for these programs, which, again, we touched on very similarly in the unemployment episodes that we've done. A lot of times it's hard to get at this money, and yeah. it's not even just administrative stuff, which is also there. It's how exactly does a person do this, or are they even aware that the program exists? Because right. I, I don't think that there's been a really uh, you know cohesive strategy to get the news out there. Yeah. So unless you're paying attention or you're a frequent visitor of Oregon.gov. <laughs> As we um, all are. Th yes. Then a lot of times you aren't <laughs> even aware of what's available to you. Right. No, that's an incredibly important point because, like you said, in, in a similar way that, you know, early on in the, the pandemic moment, like there were there was a lot of misinformation, but also just a lack of like coherent and direct information coming yeah. from trusted sources. That's true with this too. Yeah, like this information was not made available to people mm -hmm. necessarily, mm -hmm. unless, as you said, you really sought it out. Thank you so much for tuning into Labor Radio. Again, I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilliland. And we'll be back with you next month. Have a great evening. Hi, I'm Jerry Cole, and you're listening to On Writing, a podcast from the Writers Guild of America East. In each episode, you're going to hear from the people behind your favorite films and television series, talking about their writing process, how they got their project from the page to the screen, and so much more. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast Writers Guild member Lang Fisher, who's here to talk about the second season of Never Have I Ever, the Netflix series she co-created with Mindy Kaling. Lang began her television writing career at The Onion and has also written for The Mindy Project, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and 30 Rock. Welcome, Lang. So has your process changed from like when you first started writing? Do you have any sort of like ritual and or thing that you do or a schedule that you adhere to to like get the best work out? Or is it just when schedules tell me when I have to do what I have to do? The actual like physical rituals of how I write are similar. Like I still write most of the things I write in my bed. I refuse to sit at a desk and I <laughs> certainly procrastinate. But I do think the way I like approach stories and characters is very different than when I first started. Hmm. 
I think there was part of me probably coming from sketch comedy and coming from The Onion and, and doing these very sort of broad comedy things. I think there was a real part of me that was like, felt like it was like a cop out or like less cool to make your characters humane, like to not just do everything as jokes. Like I, I felt like I thought it was like the cooler way to be was to like make everything a joke and make it everything as like outlandish or weird or like silly as you can make it. And I do feel like as I've been in this world of sitcoms after Mindy, I went to Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I do mm-hmm. think, you know, what you said earlier, like grounding your characters in reality is really important and you can mm-hmm. make things so funny if you make them human. Mm-hmm. And when you don't do that, when you make people make decisions not at the top of their intelligence, then like you lose your audience. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like people mm-hmm. tend to laugh the most, I think, when they see themselves trying their hardest and failing. Or like mm-hmm. when people are like the most invested and are using like their brains and doing what any of us would do and then it has a funny outcome like it's a much more satisfying laugh than if you're watching something that like no one can relate to and it is just like lunacy so I think the biggest change for me from when I started to now is like making sure that even if you have an outlandish character you make them grounded (laughs) in reality and trying their best to do whatever it is they want to do so one of the things I always like to talk about is about on the podcast is the idea of success. I'm curious as to well, sort of what your ideas of success were and how they've evolved and like what you would call success for yourself now. That's a really good question because I do think, especially in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry, people are never allowed to like enjoy their successes. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's primed to be like, I need more. I like have to be more famous. I have to make more things or get more money or whatever. And I really Mm -hmm. am trying to feel very like grateful in this moment about this show. And I do think aside from just like what the viewers see, like I do think our show is like a nice place to work. And I think that our crew Mm -hmm. is happy and I think our actors are happy Who knows? Maybe they're not. But it does seem like a good place to work. And I really do also view that as a measure of success. It's really like an incredible thing to create your own television show. And that alone, being given that opportunity, felt like a big step up for me in my career. It's a thing that not a lot of people get to do. And the fact that like the show has been so well received feels like another Thing that I'm like very proud of. The tricky thing with writing as a profession is it takes you so long to believe that you are actually <laughs> worthy of the job and that you like belong there. And you like, most people oh, I know ha- feel like they have like imposter syndrome for so long, like years. And then finally you're like, <laughs> no, I actually know what I'm doing. But it does take forever. <laughs> to feel that way. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with us. Love the show. Thanks, guys. Can't wait for season three. (laughs) That's it for this episode. On Writing is a production of the Writers Guild of America East and is hosted by me, Jerry Cole. Thank you for listening and write on.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day that the bank robber known as Pretty Boy Floyd was gunned down by federal agents in Ohio. He was born Charles Arthur Floyd in 1904 in Georgia. His family moved to Oklahoma when he was a boy. Like many Oklahomans during this era, he fell on hard economic times. Floyd turned to crime. He did a four-year stretch in a Missouri prison for payroll robbery. When he got out, he tried to get a job in the Oklahoma oil fields. Unable to find work, Floyd took up bank robbing. He robbed banks in Kentucky, Ohio, and Missouri. He got caught and convicted in Ohio, but escaped on his train trip to prison. He made his way back to Oklahoma. There he became a folk hero. Locals called him the Robin Hood of the Cookson Hills. Legend had it that Floyd destroyed mortgage papers when he robbed banks, winning him friends among farmers reeling from the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Floyd became a national fugitive when he was accused of killing federal agents in Kansas City. He denied he was ever involved in the killings. J. Edgar Hoover, head of the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, named Floyd public enemy number one. Finally, the law caught up with Floyd in an Ohio cornfield. His body was returned to Oklahoma, where as many as 40,000 came to his funeral. Woody Guthrie remembered Floyd in song. But a many a starving farmer, the same old story told. How the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little home. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Others tell you about a stranger that come to beg a meal. Underneath his napkin left a thousand dollar bill. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you've heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith, produced by me, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips with Mel Smith. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.